0: Today on the Scott Radley show on 900 CHML.
1: You may have got a note already. Apparently they have started to be sent out. Uh, if you're a subscriber to Netflix, that is, you may have received a note that they are now cracking down on sharing accounts because they, Netflix has said publicly that, um, something like a hundred million accounts are shared. That seems like an extraordinary number, but okay. Uh, you subscribe you and your spouse share it which is 100% legitimate but then your kids that live out of the house share it and their children or who friends or whatever and suddenly now you've subscribed but five people, eight people, 10 people are using the same account in some cases Well, Netflix says enough of this. We're trying to run a business. You can argue that Netflix makes enough money or doesn't make enough money or whatever. But it really raises an interesting issue, not about Netflix per se, about what we are willing to pay for or what we feel we shouldn't have to pay for. And we don't seem to have a problem paying for tangible items. If you go and buy lunch at McDonald's, no one has ever said that I know of, you know what, I shouldn't have to pay for this. We accept that that's part of the transaction. I buy food, I give you money, you give me the food. We, we, you don't go to a car dealership and say, I, I should be able to get a car for free. But it seems with a lot of intellectual property, there seems to be anyway a widespread belief that what is out there, I don't really think I need to pay for. I should be able to stream this for free. I should be able to get on that website for free, even though it, it costs money for people to create that content. Marvin Ryder's is with the DeGroote School of Business. Uh, he, um, Well, you know Marvin. Marvin is uh, Marvin's the voice we turn to to talk about things like this and other economic things. He joins us now. Marvin, how are you today? I'm great,
2: thank you. Glad to be with
1: you. What is the dividing line here because it seems, and maybe it's, as I say, maybe it's something tangible, but it seems that we're fine most of the time to understand I have to pay for something that I will eventually hold in my hand. But for a lot of intellectual property or things like that, we seem to think that a lot of people do anyway. I shouldn't have to pay for this or shouldn't have to pay much for this.
2: Yeah, I would agree with all of what you just said. Uh, If I can just take you back 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Let's talk about a couple of media that you're familiar with. One is what we're on right now, radio, and another one is TV. And although we understood we should subscribe to cable channels, once upon a time, you didn't have to do that. You could have the rabbit ears up or the antenna, and you could get a television station and watch it, and you never really paid for that directly. But you did pay for it indirectly, thanks to advertising dollars. And so the medium lives or dies on its ability to generate those advertising dollars the same would be true with a newspaper now as our habits have changed and we'd like to get the content but we want to get the content in a different way in our mind well i never i never paid for it on the tv well you did because there were ads well i don't like the ads but i still want to get the content for free well no no you have to pay for it oh i oh, i have to pay for it well let me see if i can figure out a way to pay the least to get the most, and your example earlier where, you know, I have a subscription, my kids would like to use it, okay, that seems to be fine, and they share the password with their friends, and the next thing you know, you've got 20 people using a system that was really only designed for the family. And, and and nobody sees it as a, a crime. They see it as a victimless crime, uh, in part because, as you point out, Netflix is a very profitable company. So well, what are they going to miss another eight bucks a month for? You know, that's not going to break them. Well, no, it's not going to break them if it's just one family. But if there are millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions, it will. The same thing as my, my students at the university... Don't necessarily believe in Spotify, but they also don't necessarily believe in paying 99 cents at the iTunes store to download music, so they find a a website somewhere that posts Taylor Swift songs that have been taken from some source or another, and, well, I, I want to listen to Taylor, but I don't really want to have to pay for it, and Taylor, she's not hurting. And so, again, this idea that somehow it's a victimless crime and, okay, maybe technically it's wrong, but I'd like it for free, this has been around, you know, forever and ever and ever.
1: Is this something that we have been conditioned to that because certain things have either been easy to do or because it's, as I say, as you say, seen as victimless or because no one's ever cracked down that we've become used to this, that then when a company or an industry says, no, no, it's time to pay – that we've become so used to it being free that it seems outrageous to pay for it.
2: Yeah, I think that's certainly part of it, uh, The old, you know, the old adage, why buy a cow when I can get the milk for free? Why should I pay if I can get the content in another way? I'll give you another quick example from my students. If you ask the average McMaster University student what is the most important social medium for them, they'll likely tell you it's Instagram. Oh, I live my life on Instagram. I'd be lost without Instagram. So in a class one day, I said, suppose Instagram charge you two dollars a month for that service oh yeah that that would be reasonable i would pay that what if they charged you five at five dollars a month this absolutely invaluable service fifty percent of the people said they wouldn't buy it and at ten dollars a month there wasn't a single student who'd pay for it and yet a moment before that they told me it was absolutely invaluable it was the center of their life and So I said, don't you see a disconnect here? And and they said, well, maybe, maybe when I said it was so invaluable, maybe it's not really that invaluable. And that's the other thing. If I put a dollar value on something, then we test to see if it really has value. Uh, again, forgive me. I'm not complaining about what we do. But I think most of your listeners know that I contribute to your newscast without asking for any fee. Uh, but if at some point I said, you know, Scott, I'd like to talk to you tonight on this matter, but... I need $10, and if you said, oh, well, Marvin, that's all right, we can get this content from somebody else, then it tells you how valuable you are. And I think that's part of this as well. We say we can't live without these different media, but the minute you're asked to pay for it, guess what? I guess I can.
1: Yeah, and and, you know, you use the example of your students, and and I'd be really interested to know, and not just them, but it's a nice, easy one. If they wrote an essay, and someone else, then they put in all the work to get the grade, and then another student hacked into their computer, took their essay and submitted it as their own, mm-hmm. would they be okay with that, having them done all the work and the other person getting all the credit? And I suspect the answer would be absolutely not, not in a million years. Right.
2: Yeah, You're absolutely right. Absolutely not. Not in a million years. But you see what's different is it's my content now. Right. And my content has value, but your content not so much. Again, imagine what whoever the next Taylor Swift is is trying to break into the industry and they've produced a song and it's getting some airplay. They're expecting a revenue stream. Well, well, I don't really want to have to pay, but yet if you don't pay me, I'm not going to become the next Taylor Swift. This is the dance we play, and I, I think it's fascinating to see it play out and to see the ethics involved. Again, we go back to this idea, it may be a crime, but Marvin, it's just technically a crime. I'm not really stealing anything. And I say, yes, you are. Yes, you are. When you download a bootleg copy of a movie or a TV show or a song and you're not paying for that, you are stealing. And they only realize it when it becomes their own content.
1: Well, and so to that idea of their own content is part of the issue with this that, again, when we started this discussion, you go to McDonald's and you get a burger. I'm okay paying that because I see that someone has made this and it's something tangible. Is it that we don't think because we're not seeing people making Netflix, however you make Netflix, or making – the songs, or it's just the product is there. Is it that we don't think about the fact that there are people who have to be paid to do this?
2: Absolutely. I mean, that's the bottom line. If I were to go to a, a food cart at a mall, I expect there to be free Wi-Fi there. Uh, why? Well, you know, it's Wi-Fi. It's, it's everywhere. I, why should I have to pay for it? Well, you pay for it at home, and someone's got to pay for it here. Oh, well, you know, they can pay it. Because we don't see it, If we don't, if we can't see it, we think it should be free.
1: Can this ever change? Or have we, be, have we crossed a Rubicon where this is now a thing where we've just decided and our minds will never be changed on this?
2: Well the challenge then for these companies whether we're talking netflix or we're talking instagram or whoever we're talking about here is to keep reminding people about the value that they bring and if you see something having value then you are willing to pay for it and and so when people say i don't want to pay for it really what they're saying is i don't see the value behind it and then i actually often think this is a great test of a business if they won't pay you for your product or service, you don't really have a viable business model. So I, I don't blame Netflix cracking down. I think what we're going to see is who, who really does see value in Netflix. Uh, chances are they may lose some subscribers, mm-hmm. but if at the same time they lose people who aren't paying, then what have they really lost?
1: And and that's the one area where I might disagree with you on this where you say if there's not, if they're not willing to pay, there's no value because there are lots of these industries where people say, I don't want to pay and then they're outraged that they have to pay because it's so important to them. You use Instagram, it's so important to them that they're outraged that suddenly now you're asking for money. I, I and, and I don't know how to balance that sense of value with that sense of, but it's valuable, but it isn't valuable.
2: Well, it, again, my bottom line is if something is value, I expect to pay for it. I don't expect to get value for nothing. And those who do are living in a fairyland, <laughs> you know, because the fairy doesn't come along and do this for you. It's the same thing, you know, you see people arguing on the flight. Well, excuse me, can my child sit in this seat? Well, I paid for the seat. Yes, but my child likes a window. Couldn't you just get out of the road? No, I paid for this seat. It's not free. And you get these arguments all the time. There are people who just don't understand this concept of value.
1: Well, okay, we got to go. Um, uh, we do hold your value very high. <laughs> I am going to immediately. My math is not great, but as of tonight, I'm going to double what you get from okay. the station uh, because your value is that is that important well, to bless us. Bless your heart. Revenue <laughs> Canada appreciates it. Thank you, Marvin Ryder. Always appreciate it. Take care for now. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is a story that we have not, at least I have not on my show, talked about a whole lot in recent months. That's probably um, something that I should have done a lot more of, honestly. But the war in Ukraine is just sort of carrying on. And I think it's probably easy for us to forget what's happening a lot of the time. Again, fault on me, fault on those of us who have let this sort of slide. However... There are now reports that Russia is massing 1,800 tanks, 700 aircraft, 500,000 men on the border, and it appears that there will be or there could be another major assault on Ukraine sometime in the next little while. Um, it certainly sounds not only something we should be talking about, but something rather concerning. Uh, Christian Luprecht is a professor uh, with the Royal Military College. Um, he is uh, he is an expert in defense and security. He joins us now. Thank you for doing this. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Scott. This, uh, when you hear about half a million troops now lining up on the border along with artillery and other equipment, uh, th- th- I don't know how you uh, how you can get around the fact that this does not sound optimistic or good or anything
3: else. Right. So it reminds us on the one hand that Russia still has immense capacity. It is a large country with a large population and still, um, despite the sanctions, considerable industrial capacity. um, And that is, it is prepared, I think, to pull out all the stops here. Clearly what the Russians are putting up here is all the equipment and all the capacities, at least for a, um, a, a land war that they have remaining, keeping in mind that uh, over the last year, 5% of the U.S. defense budget destroyed about 50% of Russian military land-fighting capabilities. So this is not the latest and greatest, um, and the troops are uh, obviously, in many cases, not particularly highly trained. Uh, troops are highly motivated for that matter, but nonetheless, it's an exp- impressive array. At the same time, I think we need, all need to take a breath. You'll recall the same sort of stories Um, A little over a year ago, December, January, Russia amassing this huge number of troops and materiel, uh, and the Ukrainians wouldn't stand a chance, and it was going to be over in a matter of days, and Of course, we know that the story turned out differently. So we also need to make sure we don't play into the hands of authoritarian regimes that are very good at spinning the narrative, whether it's China or Russia. And of course, in the Russian case, there's a long holdover here from uh, the Soviet Union in terms of what's known as active measures. So actively shaping Um, the information space, both at home and abroad in ways that are on the one hand favorable to them, and on the other hand, unfavorable to the adversary.
1: Very fair point that, as I say, a year ago, we were saying Ukraine won't last a few days based on the Russian military might that it was facing, and they have. However, here's why not only the numbers obviously stand out, but here's why I look at this and feel very concerned about it. The first time it obviously didn't work for Russia. If they now load up again and it doesn't work for Russia, what then? Because I have to think that at that point, Putin doesn't want to say to lose face at what if this doesn't work, what happens next? That's the concern.
3: Yeah, I think that's a very good question. Now, you'll see that the ambitions have been scaled back dramatically. It looks like the that Putin is trying to uh, take control of the entire Donbass rather than uh, bringing to its knees the government in Kiev. And now, I think that uh, bringing to its knees Ukrainians and the government in Kiev still remains an ultimate objective, but the immediate sort of alligator closest to the vote uh, for the Russians is control of the Donbass. And of course, uh, Putin, as you sort of just intimated, is under considerable uh, pressure, you might say even duress, to demonstrate um, the ability to make some gains here. And of course, this would be then phase four of the war. Initially, the impetus was with Russia. Then the Ukrainians took the initiative and we've had this positional war for the last few months. Uh, Putin sort of has a limited window here to act. Uh, both because of announced weapons deliveries by the West that will make Ukraine more capable, both in its defense and perhaps restoring some offensive capability, but also because the ground is frozen. And by March, the ground will start to thaw. So Putin sort of needs to make a decision here on whether they're going to go or whether they're going to wait. And I think the, given the weapons deliveries that have been announced, I think Putin's calculus is he's better off to go now than to wait. But I think ultimately now this is no longer just about political objectives for Ukraine to um, try to uh, do in this fledgling democracy on its border. Uh, that really, I think, is causing major problems for him because now people realize there is actually an alternative to the decrepit the kleptocracy in Russia and that you know, people who are quite similar to them are living a much better lifestyle, you know, however difficult economically, politically um, uh, things might be in Ukraine. But I think it is also now increasing about Putin's legacy that he's been in power for well over 20 years and he has a little to show for that. Russians mm-hmm. today are poorer than, uh, uh, than they have been in two decades. Uh, and so uh, I think this is very much about how does he want to go down in the history books? And this is why I think, as you point out, he will throw everything he has at this fight. And if he doesn't win it this time around, it is very unpredictable what a very right. wounded bear might do to restore his rec- legacy and reputation.
1: Right, and and the one other thing that I read somewhere, and I don't even know if it was a leg- if it was a credible report or not, but there was a there was some suggestion that there's a belief that at some point Ukraine may go on the offensive and might even try and go after Moscow to try and send something back at Russia. Is that does that sound even reasonably possible that they would do that, or is that just? I mean, I know they're being attacked. I know they're not happy with Russia and on and on. But is that doing something that will exacerbate things rather than defending their own borders?
3: So this has been really explains much of the timidity by the West in terms of providing offensive weapons. Now, I'm not sure whether in the military you can ever really distinguish between defensive weapons and offensive weapons. But um, nonetheless, uh, the concern that Ukraine might use those to go after sovereign Russian territory proper. Um, and I think Ukraine has demonstrated considerable discipline in this regard. And when it has, uh, it's either been in territory that Russia claims, um, but that is ultimately uh, properly Ukrainian territory. Think of the Kerch uh, Bridge, the Kerch Strait Bridge, or um, a Russian bases that are really strategic targets more to send a message and to keep the Russians on sort of their back foot in terms of their logistics chains, I think, um, than to demonstrate sort of a capacity to attack. And so I think in recent days, we've had longer range weapons also provided by the Americans to Ukraine about 50% longer than the missiles they have now. So I think this suggests that there's some confidence and sort of an understanding between Ukraine and the West that weapons will be can be used in an offensive manner but they have to be used against territory that to liberate territory that is properly ukrainian territory and not used to escalate by attacking russian territory proper
1: because it does seem and i'm no military expert you you you're the military expert it seems as though um you've already got as you say Putin who might be unpredictable that would seem to me to be almost a mistake that now you know all those threats all that idea of nuclear weapons that everyone's been on pins and needles about that would maybe seem to be the thing that brings that into play
3: yes uh sure to some extreme extent that is always a risk I think that would really only become a risk if Uh, The Putin regime, the stability of the regime and the preservation of his regime would end up being called into question. And it looks like currently he's firmly in the saddle. Uh, There's not really any sense of opposition, either from the public or from uh, within government um, or the political classes or the economic elites. Everybody depends on the system that Putin has very astutely built over the last uh, 20 or so years. It's also not clear that deploying nuclear weapons would help Putin's cause. I mean, if you're mm. trying to occupy and control territory for political purpose, um, if you then contaminate that territory and make it unlivable uh, for decades to come, um, not only would that seem to me to run counter to your political objectives, it would also, I mean, that was the great achievement by the German Chancellor of Scholz traveling to China, getting a statement out of Xi Jinping that the use of nuclear weapons is never acceptable. So Russia would likely end up uh, an international pariah and sure. uh, that would hurt its economy and further the, you know, the sustainability of the regime. So um, I think, again, this is more saber rattling and the Russian narrative about nuclear fear in particularly in Germany and in Western Europe, uh, than a real tactic that is genuinely available mm. to achieve Putin's objectives.
1: That is Professor Christian Luprecht. We never even got into the all the stuff about the fact that all the economists say that a war in Ukraine ending would be great for the economy and get things back. This doesn't sound like that's happening anytime soon. That'll be another discussion for another day. Uh, very much appreciate the time today. Thank you for this.
3: Always a genuine pleasure, Scott. Have a lovely evening. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
1: Sunday, as you probably know, is Super Bowl Sunday. Are you watching? You probably watch, right? You'll watch because it's the Super Bowl. Do you care who wins? Do you wish both teams would lose because your team isn't in it? <laughs> I love that some one of the players was saying, "Not on the not in the game." I uh, was saying, "Yeah, I wish they would both lose." But I'll tell you what. Here's why I think you will watch. Let me bring in Rick Zampern, host of Good Morning Hamilton, also the host of the Fifth Quarter here on 900 CHML after TyCac games. Rick, how are you tonight? I'm fantastic, How are you? I am well. I am looking at this new survey that came out. Angus Reid asked people, "Would you Canadians would you rather watch the Grey Cup or the Super Bowl?" 62% say they would rather watch the Super Bowl than the Grey Cup. Does that surprise you? A 62% of Canadians? Yes. I'm not surprised to be honest. Not surprised at
0: all. And for the simple fact that the Super Bowl is the most watched event on the planet year in and year out. And it is by far and away, spectacle wise, the biggest show on TV. And for good reason, when you have, you know, uh, forget about the sporting event for a second, even though that's, you know, why we're all kind of watching. But, um, I just saw a survey like a day ago that says most people watch the Super Bowl, not for the game itself, but for the halftime show and the ads. Yeah. (laughs) Which is kind of crazy, but I mean, when you put in the pregame and the anthem and the game and the halftime and the part like who's going to win, and then you add the betting component where billions Mm. of dollars are being wagered on the game, there's just more interest in what the Super Bowl is all about.
1: Yeah, that's that's a great point that wasn't even factored in in my mind. I hadn't even thought about the betting part, but of course, you're absolutely right. I mean, the halftime, yes. The ads, yes. Uh, The hype, yes. All those kinds of things. Now, interestingly, Ontario, Quebec, Atlantic, Canada, strongly preferring the Super Bowl. Saskatchewan and Manitoba, more preferring the Grey Cup. I don't think that anyone would be surprised by that breakdown, but it's so interesting to me that that pretty much explains what's keeping the CFL alive in a lot of ways. I mean, Hamilton does fine. The Ticats draw... But boy, the beating heartbeat of the league is still out west.
0: Yeah, without a doubt. And you know, I, I haven't seen this poll, so I would assume demographically, it's probably you know, with the GTA being the melting pot that it is, uh, you know, there's not many people watching the CFL, period. Let alone the Grey Cup. Um, so if you're not interested in what's happening in the regular season, you might tune in to the championship final, maybe. Um, but you're you're more apt to follow the NBA. Uh, major league baseball maybe even hockey and and certainly what's happening in the NFL I mean just the sheer economics and how the NFL is always kind of throughout the year in your face whether it's free agency the draft the combine uh, you know superstar players who make multi-million dollars who are in many cases celebrities they just dwarf top to bottom whatever whatever
1: the CFL can come up with so yeah, not not surprised at all to hear these results. Except, okay, here's the real surprise to me. The mm-hmm. so you mentioned the GTA being the melting pot. Sixty six percent in the, in Ontario. Sixty six percent say they would prefer the Super Bowl. Thirty four percent want the Great Cup. And I thought, I thought that would be the biggest margin. I I'm with you. I thought Toronto would be the thing that would skew it. That would be by far the strongest Super Bowl number because we've heard about an NFL team in Toronto for a long time and everything else. Yeah. Quebec is the number one of this poll, the number one Super Bowl market. 78% prefer the Super Mm -hmm. Bowl, 22%. Quebec, Rick, has been a hotbed for university football with Laval and University of Montreal. Yeah. That's been a huge thing. Their CJAP program, which has helped produce minor football, and for a long time, the Alouettes were, you know, with Anthony Calvillo, were dominating. I thought Montreal and Quebec would be really Canadian football heavy. It's the least interested, which shocks me.
0: That is surprising because, yeah, you make a lot of good points and how they're... You know, for lack of a better term, their, their, their uh, minor football league or minor league kind of football system, their collegiate university system is extremely popular. And the Alouettes, you know, over the last 25, 30 years, you could say, arguably, one of the top teams in the league, especially during the Anthony Calvillo days, and they were just packing the house. Now, mind you, first of all, motion stadium for most of those years was just 20,000. They expanded it to 25, and then they had trouble filling the place because Calvillo had retired, and <laughs> the team wasn't as good, but still... Uh, that is surprising, and really, when you think about Quebec, like who are they cheering for? You know, in Toronto, it's the Buffalo Bills primarily, I would assume, and then you know a bunch of other teams. But in Quebec, are they going for are they New England fans? And because they've been successful, they've been following them closely. I don't know. It, that, that's a weird
1: one. It is. It is a very weird one. Now, the same thing is that I wonder about the timing of this, and it gets to another issue that's going on right now, and it brings us back more to the CFL right now the Montreal Alouettes are a bit of a, a bit of a mess. They're a bit of a gong show yeah. right now with ownership and with other stuff going on. I, I mean, I do wonder if that plays into this. If, if things were, if the team was winning, if things were solid, I wonder if people are more optimistic about the CFL and this looks different. But, but Rick, we, we're looking at, uh, I mean, a situation right now where you've got Herb Zerkowski out in Montreal, a great football writer. Um, for the Montreal Gazette, CFL can't afford to lose Alouettes, former team president Smith says. Just the the fact that we're writing, that he's writing stories about the theoretical possibility of the Alouettes folding has to be terrifying to the league.
0: Absolutely. This is a league that wants to expand to a place like Halifax or Moncton to get to 10 teams, and now they're looking at one of their teams, which uh, you know, uh, disappeared for for a little bit back in the '80s, and then came back. Um, you know, they don't want to lose any team, let alone the Montreal Alouettes, that is a you know a, a very deep history. But you know, the ownership in the CFL is not the most lucrative uh, proposition. It's it's basically for most of these uh, individuals who own these franchises a tax write-off because the losses mount, and unless you get a great Cup here and there over the you know the, the tenure of your ownership it is a real struggle. The, the other thing with the NFL too is that it's drastically different than the CFL in terms of player movement. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, you have your superstars who primarily stay with their team for the bulk if not their entire career. In the CFL, that is that, that that's not the case anymore. I mean, free agency has um, Really ruin the Canadian Football League. Like you buy a jersey to any player, and that player could be gone in a year or two. And uh-huh. you know, the the loyalty to those players is non existent in the CFL, not like it once was. You know, you think of the greats like Ange Mosca and Garney Henley, and well, even Anthony Calvillo. I know he, he started with Las Vegas, came to Hamilton, and then was in Montreal for the bulk of his career. Those Those days are gone, and that's, I think, really hurting the league.
1: Does it ever, uh, it's, go, I mean, again, you do the fifth quarter after Tiger Games. You talk to fans directly about this stuff. You, you've been involved in this for a long, long time. Do you ever sit there and say, it would be so lovely if we could get through one off season without some of the talk being on some team that is staggering? I mean, it's been... Yeah. The, the Argos for a long time because they couldn't yep. draw anyone and now you get the Alouettes and we've had other teams before it it, it seems as though and, I, and I'm not putting blame on the Canadian game it's not the Canadian game the Canadian game is fantastic but it just seems that every single time it seems that momentum gets started all of a sudden it's like a it's like a a, a thing where the, tr- the the belt slips and you lose traction and now you're starting to yep. try and pick up speed again
0: there's always, there's always something, whether it's the Elowets needing a new ownership again, uh, you know, the BC lines not too long ago after David Braley passed away, they needed a new ownership. So that was kind of a, a big question mark, you know, Saskatchewan years ago was trying to figure out how they were going to survive. And, you know, they've, they've, they've really turned that place around. Uh, even here in Hamilton, we had, you know, some really dark days years ago before Bob Young came in, the Argos have always kind of been in that boat, you know Ottawa. Vanished for a while, and they came back. Well, a few, a few times, um, and then you have the stories like Nathan Rourke, who you know is a superstar in this league, and then leaves because he's got a better opportunity with a bigger paycheck in the National Football as a, league backup. And, as a backup, as a backup, and he's a Canadian superstar <laughs> and an MOP candidate. And you know he's gone within a year and a half, and that really puts you know the league and you know the interest in the league on
1: its back foot. The if, if there is a positive to this. And it's hard to find one, but if there's a positive, um, I, I would suspect that I think the Ticats are going to be pretty good this year based on who they have anyway. But when you look at what's going on in Montreal, before training camp opens for the first light jog to warm up the players, the Ticats have already made the playoffs. Because the Alouettes <laughs> are going to be terrible and basically you're in already. I mean, it would be it would be unfathomable for the Ticats not to be in the playoffs this year because one of the teams in your conference already has essentially locked in its place at the bottom of the standings.
0: Unless the Ottawa Red Black somehow, somehow, way turn their franchise around like no one's seen before. But yes, I get your point. I mean, no one in their right mind who's a free agent, and the, to be honest, there's dozens of free agents in the CFL, each and every off season in this, this off season, no exception. Um, no one's going to want to go to Montreal. Who's going to want to go to a team that has no ownership structure. Um, you don't know who's going to be the guy. What kind of budget are they working on? Uh, are they going to retain their coaching staff? Uh, even though Jason Moss has just gone there as the, as the new head coach, who knows what a new owner is going to do. What, what's their team going to look like? Which free agents are going to leave the team. Um, yeah. M- Montreal could be the worst team in the league. And by a long shot, Uh, I I can't see anybody wanting to go there, wanting to play there, or them figuring it out kind of halfway through. I mean, we're just a few weeks away from training camp, really. I mean, we're talking, you know, uh, mid-February. In a couple months, these guys are going to be on the field, and in about a week, they're going to start signing some pretty lucrative contracts by CFL standards, and Montreal is going to be way off the pace.
1: I am not a gambling man, but if there was ever, and I'm not putting money on the Super Bowl, if there was ever a bet that I would be willing to make, though, it is that Montreal will be last place in the CFL this year. Simply because, as you say, they are so far behind the eight ball already that what, what would need to happen for the Alouettes not to be the worst team in the league, essentially is that every single player on their roster would simultaneously have to have the greatest year of their career, and then a bunch of good things happen.
0: Yeah, and a team like Edmonton, who hasn't won a home game in forever, continues that streak and just can't figure it out for some reason, but they, I would think the Elks are going to be a little bit better than they were last year. But yeah, Montreal, dead last in the CFL, book it. If there is a betting website that is offering this prop, uh, hop on it right now.
1: Yeah. And and okay. And so even if we say the Alouettes might not finish dead last because the Elks might somehow lower themselves to their last in the East is a, is a safe bet. I mean, (laughs) it's just, yeah. and so if you're the Ticats, you have to be loving this because it's just one less thing to have to worry about. You can, for this season, use... You want to finish first. You want to get the bye. You want to have home field. But you don't have to be worrying that somehow there's a chance that if things go wrong, you don't make the playoffs. You're in.
0: It's too bad the Ticats don't play Montreal like 17 times this year. (laughs) You know, the the Argos last year, they played them, what, four times in five weeks. I think Hamilton only plays Montreal twice. No, it's actually, I just looked at the schedules, three times this year. Um, So there's three wins. For the Ticats, and I'm sure they'll get many more in twenty three in twenty twenty three.
1: There better be three wins. Do you, I mean, <laughs> if if you're the Ticats with the aspirations you have for the Grey Cup at home this yeah. year and those three games against Montreal, uh, you know, when you say those are three wins, all I think about is the Maple Leafs playing against that West Coast swing this year when they play the worst place teams and they lose to them all the time. You'd better win those three games. Hey,
0: listen, don't look now, but the Ticats play the juggernaut Blue Bombers in Week 1 in Winnipeg and then are in Toronto against the defending champion Argonauts. I don't want to say it, but uh, they could be hosting Montreal in their home opener 0-2. I doubt it. It could happen, but I doubt it.
1: I think the Argos are also not going to be good this year. That's their pattern. Win a great Cup stink for two, three years, win another you're great right. cup. So we'll yeah, right. see. Uh listen, we gotta run. But uh Super Bowl on Sunday, Kansas City against Philadelphia. Um this game doesn't matter. The Bills aren't in it, so who cares, right? <laughs> Well, not being a Bills fan, I still... Oh, you're a Dolphins fan, thinking. so Dolphins uh, yeah. aren't in it, so who cares?
0: Yeah, so who cares? Yeah. You know what, I'm, I'm looking for a coin to see who I'm picking for Sunday, really. It's going to be that close, I think.
1: I don't have, uh, obviously, my, my, I, I, my son and I cheer for the Bills as sort of a family thing. Uh, I don't know who I think is going to win, but boy, I hope Kansas City loses. I just hope Kansas City loses. With every, I, I I hope they get lost on the way to the stadium. They don't make it in time for kickoff and they forfeit. That's that's what I'm wishing for. It could happen. You know, stranger things happen. We'll see. <laughs> Rick Zamprin, you can hear him tomorrow morning, five thirty, right here on 900 CHML. Thanks for doing this.
0: You got it anytime. The Scott Radley Show, weekday evenings from six
1: to eight on 900 CHML.